0: Thank you for joining us around the fire for more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactsnetwork.com. Now want to hear a scary story? John, a young man of 26 was free from work, ready to skate and ski in the Alps and celebrate the new year. He occupied the top floor in one of those old, gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. He was catching the morning boat and planned to pack before getting a good night's sleep. As he filled his suitcase with clothes, the snaps broke off and fell to the floor. He had known it was deteriorating, but had expected it to last through one more trip. Now, he realized, he had made a terrible mistake. It was getting late, and he'd have to rush to make it to the store before it closed for the evening. Only a few blocks away from home was a second-hand shop. John entered, taking in the warmth, and was greeted by the assistant. "'I'm looking for a suitcase, the largest one you have.' The clerk took him to the back corner, where there was one large suitcase on display." well outside of John's price range. Is there any room to haggle? The clerk laughed. We close in five minutes. John panicked and looked around the shop, finding nothing in his price range that would do. Please, sir. I'm leaving on a trip in the morning, and my suitcase just came apart moments ago. Any bag. Do you have anything less expensive that I could purchase? The clerk sighed deeply. Please. There's nowhere else for me to go tonight. I'd have to delay my trip. The clerk disappeared into the back, where John could hear him shuffling around. After a few moments, he came out with a large, brown canvas duffel. Just came in. Good bones, but pretty dirty. Wanted to clean it up before putting it out. How much? It was less than half the cost of the suitcase, and the clerk gave an additional discount for the dirt and grime. As John left the store, the clerk turned off the lights behind him. Now go, and enjoy your holiday. John was thrilled. In just thirty hours, he'd be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the High Alps in winter. The night was cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the ice-cold wind followed, howling dismally among the big, gloomy houses. And when he reached his home, he could still hear the whistling wind beyond his windows. He passed his landlady, shielding a candle from the drafts with her thin hand. I'll be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks, if you don't mind collecting my letters. She winked at him. Well, I hope you have a happy new year, sir, and better weather than this. I hope so, too. He shivered as he ascended the stairs. The sleet volleyed against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee and then set about packing. He liked the packing as it brought the snowy mountains so vividly before him. For the first time, he took a long look at his recent purchase. The bag was not elaborate in nature. A stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped, with holes around the neck for a brass bar and padlock. Empty, it was shapeless and not much to look at. But its capacity was unlimited, and he was thrilled that he wouldn't have to pack carefully. He shoved his coat, cap, gloves, and skates into the bag, followed by climbing boots, sweaters, snow boots, and earmuffs. On top of these, he added piles of woolen shirts and underwear, followed by thick socks. His suit was next, in case there was a fancy dinner at the hotel, and then he paused for a moment to reflect. It was after ten o'clock, and a furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him. He thought of the poor people he'd leave behind to spend their new year in such a climate, while he was skimming over snowy slopes in bright sunshine, dancing with rosy-cheeked girls. That reminded him. He must pack his dancing shoes and evening socks. He crossed the room to the cupboard when he heard soft footsteps on the stairs. He paused for a moment, listening. It was Mrs. Monk's, he thought, but then the steps ceased suddenly and he heard no more. They must have been two flights down, he thought, and they belonged to a late lodger. John went back to his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts into the bag, By now, the duffel was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own like a sack of flour. The clerk had mentioned it was dirty, but only now did John see how old and ratty it truly was, faded and worn, obviously subjected to rather rough treatment. As he continued packing, John occasionally thought again about the footsteps down below. From time to time, he was almost certain he heard the soft tread of someone paddling over the floorboards, and they seemed to be getting nearer. For the first time in his life, John felt true creepiness. He had left the room for something, and as he returned, he noticed the top of the bag had lopped over with the extraordinary resemblance of a human face... The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or possible stain he couldn't tell exactly, looked like tangled hair. I shall be glad of a change of scenery, he thought to himself. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs, and to realize it was much closer than before as well as unmistakably real. This time, he got up and went to see who it could be at so late an hour, but the sound ceased, and there was no one on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the vacant rooms, all empty, only shadows. He called over the banisters to Mrs. Monks, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep. Everyone except himself and the owner of these mysterious footsteps. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind after all, although it seemed so very real and close. He went back to his packing. It was getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last before turning in. With something of a start, John suddenly realized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. "'Pure nerves, I suppose,' he said aloud with a forced laugh. "'Mountain air will cure all that,' he added, still speaking to himself. "'And that reminds me, my snow glasses.' As he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs. It was someone a few steps down from the top. They were in a stooping position.' With one hand on the banisters, and the face peering up towards the landing, John had found the source of the footsteps. Who in the world could it be, and what did he want? John caught his breath sharply and stood still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs were empty. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated at the top of the staircase. Then he walked fast, almost ran into the light of the front room. As he passed inside the doorway, he heard someone come up the stairs behind him and go into his bedroom. It was a heavy footstep, but stealthy, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. That was someone on the stairs then, he muttered, his flesh crawling all over. And whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Finally, he went into the other room, where a few seconds before the steps had disappeared. Mrs. Monks? The words fell dead against the curtains in a room that held no other figure than his own. ''Who's there?'' he called. ''What do you want here?'' The curtain swayed very slightly, and as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat. He dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but clothes, and there was no one under the bed. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, he nearly tripped over the large duffel bag. A few moments before, it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bathroom, and he did not remember moving it. What in the world was the matter with everything? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass. He came to his senses. There's no one here, that's quite clear. Yet even as he said it, he knew perfectly well that he did not believe the words himself. He felt like someone was hiding close, watching him. He went back into the front room, poking the fire into a blaze, and sat down to think. Outwardly, John remained calm, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had come up the stairs and gone into the bedroom. He began humming, a bit too loud to be natural, and crossed into his room when he felt every hair on his head stand up. The bag was right in front of him, several feet closer than before, and over the crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly shrinking down and out of sight. He was certain he heard breathing. Who's there? He had found his voice, though it was just a whisper. He stepped forward so that he could see all round and over the bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, only being three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded blood stain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the bag unmistakably lurched towards the door. John collapsed back, searching for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut with a resounding bang. His left arm hit the light switch, and the room went dark. He groped furiously for the knob to turn the light on again, but the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets. So it was several moments before he found the switch. And in those moments of terror, two things happened that sent him over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor, and close in front of his face sounded like the heavy breathing of a human being. In his efforts to find the button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers, and then he realized he dreaded the return of the light. It might be better for him to stay in the merciful screen of darkness. But he yielded to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better to stay in the shelter of darkness. For there, right before him, bending over the half-packed bag, stood a tall, bulging figure, greasy and pale in the merciless glow of the electric light. John felt a disturbing familiarity. Not three feet from him, the monster of a man stood, tangled black hair sprawling from his scalp. John attempted to grope the door handle, but the man lifted his devil's face and looked straight at him. My bag. John finally clawed the door open and fell into a heap on the landing, knocking his head against the floorboards and going unconscious. It was still dark when he opened his eyes, and he realized he was lying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. The memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he nearly fainted again. Could it all have been a dream? He crawled to the front room as the wintry dawn began to peep at the windows, and covered himself with an overcoat in the armchair and fell asleep for several hours. "'What? You ain't bent to bed, sir?' Mrs. Monks had come up the stairs, making a great clamor. Before he could answer, she continued, "Well, There's an urgent gentleman here to see you, though it ain't eight o'clock yet. Who is it? Says he's an officer. Show him up at once, please. John's head was whirling, and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. The officer apologized for the early visit and explained that a terrible mistake had been made. We don't know how, but the bag disappeared from the courthouse and ended up at the shop that you went to last night. We've been tracking it down and the shop owner sent us to you. John didn't understand. Why would the bag have been in the courthouse? This bag was evidence in the Turk case. The Turk case? John went cold. In a flash, he realized what it all meant. The monster he had seen had been David Turk who recently got off for murder due to insanity, the dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how Turk stuffed the victim's body into a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly dismembered fragments forced into this very bag, and the bag produced itself as evidence. The shop owner was awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with this, as you'll be leaving soon. The officer pointed to the large suitcase John originally had his eye on, but he couldn't find his voice. Finally, he said, If you can unpack the bag for me, just empty the things onto the floor. He gestured to the bedroom, and the officer went inside for several minutes. John could hear the shifting and rattle of items being unpacked. Thank you, sir. He had returned with the large bag folded over his arm. Is there anything else I can do? No, thank you. I'm happy to help in any way. I wanted to see him get put away for a long time. The officer looked back with pained eyes. I guess it was just a nightmare, like some part of myself knew it was his bag. I thought I saw him last night. The officer chuckled, though it felt forced. He hesitated for a moment. You couldn't have seen him last night. Turk poisoned himself right after release. John's blood ran cold. Poisoned? What time did he do it? About ten o'clock. John's eyes landed on the old canvas bag. Most disturbing is, he left a note. Said he wanted the same treatment as the woman he killed. He wanted to be buried in this same bag. The Double Bag, story by Algernon Blackwood, adapted and told by Brian Renaud, featuring Aaron Holland and Shannon Lee Weber.